This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're talking about Malcolm in the Middle. It was my pick, <laughs> as you might have guessed. And I'm just in such a good mood to do this today. Really, such a good mood. <laughs> so I'm going to start because I have all sorts of things to say. In the early 2000s, Fox ran four sitcoms in primetime on Sunday nights. The first three were animated programs. Futurama came on at 7 p.m. Eastern, then King of the Hill at 7.30, then The Simpsons at 8. But after those three shows were done, if you stuck around, you got to see Malcolm in the Middle at 8.30. I loved Malcolm in the Middle. The show ran for seven seasons. During the week, they'd run reruns of these shows during the window between when kids got home from school and their dinner time. I made a point to watch Malcolm. Often those 30 minutes were the best part of my day. I try to catch the show every day so I could see all the episodes in order. Once I got a computer in my room, I mostly stopped watching live TV. But twice in my life, I've made a point to rewatch Malcolm in the Middle, start to finish. I did it once in 2014 during my MA at University of Chicago. I've done it again this year to share the show with my girlfriend. Here's how it works. You've got two parents, Lois and Hal. Lois is extremely principled, but a bit of a control freak. She moralizes in black and white, and she enforces her ethical judgments with an iron fist. Hal, played by a younger Brian Cranston, has a much more laid-back parenting style. People on the internet who half remember the show love to point out that Hal has a lot of phobias, but he's no Homer Simpson. Hal is a mediator. Everyone comes to Hal when things get really difficult. The boys are terrified of Lois, but they'll talk to Hal. Hal shares the boys' perspectives with Lois, and Hal shares Lois's perspective with the boys. I had Hal and Nina watch the episode Red Dress. It's season one, episode two. Here, Hal has booked an anniversary dinner with Lois. Hal is at the restaurant, waiting for Lois to arrive. But Lois discovers that a dress she's recently purchased has been burned and thrown in the toilet. She's certain the boys did this to her, and she sets about trying to punish them. With Hal at the restaurant, the relationship between Lois and the boys is totally unmediated. She punishes them in increasingly gratuitous, over-the-top ways. At the end of the episode, we learn that it was Hal who burned the dress by accident. Now, you can look at that episode and see a silly TV dad who made a dumb mistake. But I see the lack of Hal in the house, the absence of the father. Without Hal, the house runs on brute coercion. There is no effort to legitimate parental authority. It is exercised by Lois as sheer force. I should say something about the boys. For most of the show's run, there are four. Francis, the eldest, has been sent away to military school. He is the most like Lois. He sees morality in black and white, and he cannot help but flout rules that strike him as unjust. Because he is like Lois, he constantly fights with her. Throughout the show, Francis tries to escape from exploitative power structures. He spends the first two seasons defying the military school's commandant. Then in season three, he flees the military school to go to Alaska. Every time Francis gets out from under one cruel power structure, he finds himself under the thumb of another, but his spirit is never broken. Then there's Reese. Reese starts the show as the school bully. He is cunning but not clever and struggles in school. At the start of the show, the other kids fear and revere him. 
But as the show goes on, Reese loses status. At the end of the show, he takes a job as the school custodian. His fall is slow and gradual. You can only truly appreciate it by watching the whole show from start to finish. The youngest brother is Dewey. Dewey endures torment from his older brothers, and he is often ignored by his parents. There is a strenuous effort in season two to keep Reese out of remedial classes, but Dewey is allowed to fall into them even though he is clearly too smart for them. Dewey is hardened by his experiences. He invents imaginary friends, and he befriends animals and outcasts. When he's sent to the remedial class, he takes on a leadership role, often interceding to help the other kids deal with problems. The titular character, Malcolm, is born between Reese and Dewey. Malcolm is very bright. He has something of his mother's moral compass, but his intelligence helps him rationalize wading into gray areas. He struggles to relate to kids his own age and uses sarcasm to protect himself, often alienating the people he wants to win over. The show often centers on Malcolm's struggle to reconcile his intelligence with ethics. Lois knows that Malcolm is bright. She is especially strict with him because she doesn't want him abusing or wasting his potential. There's another episode called Evacuation. It's season two, episode 24. Here Lois is punishing Malcolm for coming home late. Malcolm came home late because he was studying with his friend, but Lois doesn't care. You see, the family was moving some furniture, and because Malcolm came home late, Hal and Reese had to do the job all by themselves. Malcolm must not be allowed to think that his own academic progress is more important than other people's well-being, so Lois grounds him for two weeks. Meanwhile, Hal accidentally leaves a couch on a set of railroad tracks. This causes a train accident. The train was carrying dangerous chemicals, and so the people of the town are evacuated. At the community shelter, Lois continues to punish Malcolm. She forces him to stay in his cot and prohibits him from talking to other children. Hal feels guilty about derailing the train and runs off to do good deeds for other people in a bid to clear his conscience. This allows Lois and Malcolm to interact without his mediation. A much younger boy steals Malcolm's shoe. Malcolm gets up from his cot to retrieve it, but Lois orders him to sit down. Lois says she'll get the shoe back for him. Embarrassed, Malcolm decides to say no to Lois. He challenges her directly. What are you going to do, spank me? Lois grabs him and prepares to do just that. Malcolm is still too small to physically resist. She bends him over, but she doesn't strike him hard. Instead, she gently taps his bottom in front of the whole town. (laughs) When I can't do that, we'll change the rules, Lois says. Again, without Hal, it's all sheer force. When I was a kid, I saw a lot of my own family in this. My mom hates when I say it, but she's a lot like Lois. She's very principled, and I respect that, but when I challenge her... She has a hard time winning me over. My dad was a lot more competent than Hal, but he often played the same mediating role. He explained my mom to me, and he explained me to my mom. I was the smart kid, like Malcolm, and my brother is tough and resourceful, like Dewey. We often talk about the family on the lack, and about fathers and their role. Malcolm in the Middle is a very male show. The boys have no sister. They have a mother who exercises a lot of coercive power, but who struggles to legitimate her power. The family only works insofar as Hal succeeds in keeping it together. Brian Cranston does a masterful job being at once the boy's ally, Lois's partner, and a source of comic relief. He has had a very successful career since the show ended 
in no small part due to his success on it. While Lois is battering the boys in red dress, Hal is stuck at that restaurant. He befriends the waitstaff. He treats everyone he meets in that establishment like a human being. In Malcolm in the Middle, the family is decidedly working class. Lois works in a grocery store. Hal has an office job, but it's not a good one. This show depicts a kind of family that has been pushed to the margins over the last 30 years. This is a two-parent, lower-middle-class family. It is intact despite continuous financial pressure. Characters lose their jobs. Children are pressed into the workforce at early ages to supplement the family's income. The family is white and mostly male. The biggest antagonist is the ever-lurking threat of poverty. You couldn't make Malcolm in the Middle today. Every episode begins with the song Boss of Me by They Might Be Giants. The chorus reads as follows. You're not the boss of me now. You're not the boss of me now. You're not the boss of me now. And you're not so big. Lois's power hangs by a thread. Each episode might be the one. The one where one of the kids finally succeeds in throwing off the yoke. The whole show is a legitimacy crisis. I'll probably watch the whole thing again two or three more times before I die. All right. (laughs) So let's throw to Helen next. Okay, well, I have very similar thoughts to you. It'll be interesting to hear what Nina says. And Benjamin and I are closer in age. And it was something that I really enjoyed growing up. And I did rewatch from start to finish in 2016 with uh, my then boyfriend. Um, I absolutely love it. And it's funny. I'm going to talk about um, what is political and comedy, first of all, and then about how, yeah, just picking up on Benjamin's point about like, you know, would it be possible to make this today? It's actually quite a solidly critical show. You know, it's quite left wing and it's sort of a position. And then this idea of uh, life is unfair which comes just after the chorus that Benjamin was talking about. So, um, Freud talks about comedy in its relationship to the unconscious, that it's sort of structured similarly to the unconscious. So it's political in the sense that it is a, like humour, that something that makes us laugh is a point, it's a moment that reveals the dialectical nature of truth. So two truths being there at the same time, they tend to be completely opposite truths. And this is something that we've talked about so much on the lack, the idea of the dialectical nature of reality, the dialectical nature of truth and how a politics, um, how the ideology of promise, how sort of woke capital tries to um, do the opposite of politics with the veil of politics by um, seizing ideology towards um, oppositional thinking. But politics is really this collision of different perspectives to, to, to find something new. And you know, questioning how do we manage oppositional desires? How do we manage, um, you know, resources when we have all these different voices that will always inevitably be there because this um, contradictory and dialectical nature of human subjectivity is in all of us and is in um, us individually and collectively because we are all undercut by the unconscious. So this is why, in a way, wokeness despises comedy and we have to always, like, cancel comedians because comedians, by definition undercut ideology and bring back contradiction. This is in the very nature of a joke. A joke is sort of, you know, what what is funnier things to do with the collision of contradictions. So, you know, um, a very large person beating people at a sport or a very dumb person, you know, getting into Mensa, all these different things. These are that's sort of the nature of, of how comedy works. So there is a contradiction in humor in humor. 
And when we try to retain things in binary logic, which is the dynamic that existed in fascistic thinking with um, having to uh, turn contradiction into opposition. So instead of accepting that the world is complex and contradictory and never perfect, we fantasize about a utopian future. We must generate a scapegoat behind whom or an opponent or an enemy behind whom this, this utopia exists. And we can just get to that utopia by destroying the the opponent, but really, you know, left wing philosophically speaking, philosophy is about, um, or, or, or perspectives are about transforming oppositional thinking back into contradiction. And that's where we can find truth. That's where we can um, build better uh, political structures. That's how we can um, pick the living flower in the Marxist term. Um, and obviously, capitalism um, is, a, is a distortion of the true nature of human subjectivity, which is dialectical, which is undercut by the unconscious, which is ambivalent, um, selling us uh, a commodity or a future. Well, I mean, this ideology promise it exists in various, you know, th- throughout uh, different forms of um, social management, let's just say, but within capitalism, it's to do with, with the promise of the commodity. And there's a huge amount of um, dissatisfaction today because we're promised something that obviously cannot be given to us because of the nature of um, sort of this shareholder capitalism or corporate capitalism, which is not really um, satisfying people. So, and really, this this ties into this idea of life is unfair. And I think that, you know, this is really the theme of the piece. And obviously, a lot of a lot of comedy, a lot of British comedy, is to do with um, confronting characters with loss. I think I've mentioned this a lot of times, but Peep Show, another brilliant um, comedy series. Uh, there's a moment when Mark says that he's he's got a job with a loss adjusters and his inner voice says, great, a loss adjusters. This is the story of my life, one continual adjustment to loss. So, you know, it's the, part of the thing that's funny about the human experience is that we are we're these sort of base creatures. We've created a world, obviously, you know, with our being self-conscious beings, having minds, having thought and language. We're able to create things in ways that are beyond our animalistic capacity. And we're constantly confronted with this sort of contradiction between what we can control and uh, what we can create and what we can aspire to and what we have in reality. But this isn't a life is unfair in a sort of like horribly conservative, get on with it kind of thing, tough it out. It's precisely the opposite. It exposes the lie of neoliberalism. It exposes the lie of the ideology of promise that you can have it all. And if you haven't got it, it's because, well, you know, you haven't really worked hard enough or you weren't deserving or what have you. And it's interesting how it deals with um, like intelligent characters. I think this is quite an anti-neoliberal um, idea. And it kind of ties into a lot with what um, Benjamin talks about in terms of roles. So, you know, it, 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 children are smart, right? It's not, it's not saying that like... Um, Malcolm is smart and is therefore deserving of the universe. And in fact, I rewatched just for today, I did the first episode, the last episode, which is to do with him going to college and his parents sort of tell, tell him what his, their grand plans for his life are. And it's very, it's quite funny actually. And then um, my two favorite episodes, the one is where uh, Hal takes up race walking and the other one, and they're probably lots of people's favorite one, where he uh, teaches Malcolm uh, skating. And I just absolutely find it hilarious. And actually to talk about the one about the, um, the race walking. I think this is another, re- and I'll get back to the point about neoliberalism and, and roles in a second, but um, that Hal's pursuit of his passion is like ridiculous. You know, it's that, obviously they picked a slightly kind of like ridiculous pursuit, but in all, in, in a sense, a lot of hobbies and pursuits are ridiculous. And it, it's done in this sort of very camp and like um, over the top way that it kind of explodes this idea that like, you know, 
if you're good at something or that, you know, these, these pursuits have to be commoditized or you have to be perfectly good or you can, you can actually just enjoy things that are a bit embarrassing, you know, and you don't have to be um, perfect and, and uh, like that which is presented to you in an advert. Of course, the, the dimensions of, of neoliberalism were, were different 20 years ago to how they are now and obviously what we're often um, presented with is not an image of perfection that maybe they were presented to in the, in the late 90s and early noughties, but rather um, a sort of um, imperfection that we must enjoy lest we not be the perfect ethical creatures. So it's gone from image to, to fake ethics, I think, right now, which is obviously to do with, with image. Um, but yes, yeah, so he, he just enjoys this, and, it, and it's just ridiculous and for the sake of it, and it's humiliating, and it's not this sort of like, wow, get how impressive and good he is. This is very cringe. But to go back to this point about um, intelligence, so, you know, there's, there's often this sort of... Um, idea and I think this is an idea that comes from the left that like your your intelligence is to do with your um your your upbringing your wealth and your and this is this is partly true right you know if you're able to have access to um teaching and you know good nutrition and all these kinds of things these these are factors but in a way like a lot of the the quote-unquote left-wing um uh, critiques of capitalism aren't left-wing enough and they end up get turning into sort of a neoliberalized kind of like ethical critique, which is not actually ethical at all, which is sort of like, I know these sort of partly Marxist things and I'm going to, um, you know, let let the working class eat slogans and be like, I know, I've been watching a lot of radio shows um, on YouTube at the moment from a French radio channel. They've done a lot on um, this idea of a transfuge de classe, which is like a class refugee. And this author, Annie Arnaud, who actually did a dissertation, and I do, I do really like, there's a, there's a film that's just come out of one of her books, um, and she's sort of a, a big figure in French, French contemporary literature, but she talks about how she came to, comes from a working class background. And it really got me thinking to how this is true. This is all true. But in a way, it, it's, it doesn't go far enough in terms of its critique. And maybe we can talk about this later on, because as Malcolm proves, you know, he's from a really shit background, but he just happens to be very, very intelligent. And this is not, as his parents point out, something that um, makes him ethically superior or... Um, you know, that, that he should be treated in a better way because of his intelligence. The problem with neoliberalism is not that it is, you know, to do with this, this sort of dialectic of um, meritocracy and being held hostage to the lie of meritocracy. Because in a way, meritocracy t- ties the random fact that some of us are clever and some of us are good at sport to value. Instead of it just being like, this is the way it is and maybe assigning roles to people based on their ability in a way that doesn't um, differentiate based on monetary reward through something that's nothing to do with your own hand. Um, and that is to do with both the fact that uh, intelligence often um, or academic achievement often is engendered by, um, you know, having access to resources growing up and good nutrition, all this kind of stuff. But also some people from whatever background are just incredibly intelligent and that's the way it is. Um, but that's that's nothing to that's that's not a that's not a moral critique. And so, um, as I say, like I think sometimes um, this sort of one-sided leftist critique doesn't quite get to the heart of the way that value is engendered in capitalism and in neoliberalism, and sort of um, allows for it to continue as long as there is the ideological supplement of oh, we're all unaware aware of how unfair it is, and that allows the unfairness to persist. Instead of sort of rethinking the 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 um, dynamic that underpins it all entirely, 
Um, and yeah, I mean, it is about a not amazingly privileged family, very low middle class family. And, you know, we get a lot of laughs about sort of um, people skiving off work, schemes to sort of um, undercut uh, the man in a way. So when uh, Reese gets his job as a janitor in the final episode, he's finding ways to create work for himself so that he can get a union gig. And um, it is quite funny because it's sort of like making his own mess. I mean, it, and it really does underscore that episode, the pointlessness of labor. So he's trying to create a mess so big that he, at the school that he's employed at, so that after 30 days, he will still be tidying that mess so that he can be keep, kept on not as a probationary person just for the 30 days, but as part of this union gig. Um, and yeah, the parents are a bit shit, but it's fine. You know, I feel like today we might have sort of like, you know, this is toxic masculinity. We're celebrating boys being rough and tumble or whatever. And the parent, you know, you know th- this is like in a Winnicottian sense, they're shit, but that's fine. You know, being too good a parent psychoanalytically can really screw up your child just as much as being, you know, a, a very inadequate parent. We need a, in, in Winnicott's terms, good enough parent so that children can have a sort of safe, you know, a, a good attachment style, secure attachment style so that they can have space to develop their own ego and not be so, you know, for example, psychotic with a with a, an over proximity of, of the parental figure. Um, but at the same time that they are, you know, able to uh, be recognized within their parents, parents as subjectivity is sort of like existing beings in their own right. So they're shit, but they're, you know, they're potentially good enough parents. And, and, and Ma- Malcolm does end up at, at Harvard at the end. Um, and I'm just going to skip a few points, but, um, it is interesting. The last, the last episode where, um, Malcolm, they're trying to pull together all of the grants and the loans that they need for Malcolm to go to Harvard because they essentially, you know, they obviously can't afford it. And, um, they manage to scrimp and save it all together. And he, he gets a job as a janitor eventually, but he gets a call from the Pierce grant, which is a grant for low, you know, under, you know, low income, um, students. And they end up pulling his grant um, as an un, uh, as a low income student to fund a study about you know why it's so difficult for low income students to go to university. And this is like this is you know just like we we talked about with Brazil. This is like a this is a real critique of, for instance, you know that's that's a real like proto woke uh, enterprise to do that. And I think this relates to what I was saying with the transfusion de class idea that like oh as long as we talk about it, as long as AOC wears a dress. As long as we're, you know, being aware of dynamics is not enough. You know, you have to, and, and being aware of like the emergence. So we have, let's say, like the political economy and we have, you know, the, the kind of like superstructure, whatever. We, that it's not enough just to pontificate. And anything that is a solution, that's sold as a solution to the antagonisms of capitalism will be capitalized on to ensure that more antagonism persists. So we have to get back to the very dynamic that generates our subjectivity, our distorted subjectivity, and the resultant attempt at remedying the distortion that comes through things like capitalism and ideology. But yeah, he 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 ends up going having to be a um, uh, a janitor, and um, it's an interesting image. His parents at the end tell him that you know he's gonna. They have aspirations for him to be a, a politician. They depict a politician or a president eventually, one that is really truly one of the good guys, quote unquote. I mean, always this is the sort of the lie, right? But he, um, that he'll really be so alienated from his other Harvard, Harvard um, 
students, his life will be really shit. He'll know what it's like to be a working person and then he'll be able to fight on the side of the good. I mean, that was the one moment in the whole series where they sort of get a bit preachy and who knows if it's ever possible to, to engender um, an ethical person, to like create a Frankenstein uh, ethical politician from like circumstance. But anyway, I love this show. So, yeah. All right. When I suggested that we do this, and suggest is really a light way of putting it. I, I kind of said we were going to do this. Uh, Nina initially was a little bit sketched about the idea of doing Malcolm in the Middle. So we're going to have to see if we've managed to win Nina over. Well, I, okay. I was, yeah, I was going to begin by saying that when Benjamin suggested this, I my uh, instinct to be something of a, an elitist in the cultural sphere was uh, was kicked in uh, quite hard. And uh, this is not a show I grew up with. Uh, it's it's after my time. I would say like something like um, Harry Potter, which I never read at the time because I already regarded myself as too old <laughs> for these books, uh, even though adults were reading them. But I was a teenager and I thought, well, I, I should be reading, you know, Stendhal and D.H. Lawrence and Proust not reading Harry Potter. And I think similarly with something like this, I'm only, I was only vaguely aware of its existence, uh, to be honest. Um, but it's not to say uh, that uh, I didn't uh, enjoy it. I've been trying to convalesce this week from an operation I had a week ago today. So while I would of course, normally be imbibing, you know, the, the, <laughs> the greatest products of 20th century avant-garde filmmaking. I was not averse to watching uh, five episodes, which is how many I managed of season one of Malcolm in the Middle. So including the Red Dress episode. So, you know, and they're kind of 20 minutes. They're, they're, they're a sort of nice amount of time. You, you don't find yourself too quickly reaching for the distraction tabs, which we find ourselves uh, hovering between, especially, I think, if you're convalescing. I thought I'd be more able to focus on one thing, but it, I sort of become less focused and my uh, acuity is somewhat, um, yeah, gone. So so I'm not as, I feel not as sharp as, as I usually do. So I might not be able to speak about it uh, quite so well, but let's, let's see. So, uh, so in that sense, it was it wasn't the be the worst choice <laughs> of thing. Um, it reminded me of of shows that that were on when I was younger to some extent. I mean, they're very different in style, but something I had a kind of I couldn't work out who it was aimed at. I suppose I did have a, an issue about whether this was aimed at teenagers or adults um, because it kind of falls somewhere in between in a strange way. And I think something like my so called life did this as well it was a little bit too edgy for teenagers though of course teenagers loved it um i don't know if, if either of you have seen my so-called life it was claire danes's yeah see um and the other show i really liked when i was a bit younger was was actually set in indiana which is where benjamin is from and it was called eerie indiana i don't know if either of you have ever seen this um but benjamin you might be very curious about the show it was about this uh supernatural occurrences happening in this town called Erie, Indiana. Um and it had a kind of similar Malcolm type character, like a kind of very smart, sort of um 
I somewhere between uh, child and teenager sort of thing, you know, like a young boy who was very sort of scientific and he wanted to solve these kind of mysteries and going even further back, uh, Children of the Stones, which was set in Avebury, which is near where I grew up, which is a much older TV show, which had a similar thing about a kind of very bright young boy who was curious about how everything worked um, and so on. And um, it also reminded me of the show, which, which uh, you might have to help me with because I can't remember the name of it but if I describe it uh it might come to mind it it was basically like two brothers it's not trailer park boys but it's a similar sort of class vibe and they're these two brothers and I think they've both given up drinking or taking drugs and the whole show is about them making amends it's like the one of the steps on the Alcoholics Anonymous program and are you talking about my name is Earl my name is Earl, that's it. This was on, like when you started talking about these shows that were on at a particular time, like on a Friday evening or something, I think this was the show, for whatever reason, that that I liked watching was My Name is Earl. And basically, it's a very stupid show. All they did, they had a list of everyone that they've ever upset. And each episode, they go and try and apologise with predictably, you know, zany consequences uh, to somebody that they can't even remember offending but they've upset at some point in the past due to their sort of wayward behaviour. And they had like loads and loads of these episodes and it, it was completely formulaic um, and it was very, very stupid. But for some reason, I really enjoyed the show. And Malcolm in the Middle first reminded me in different ways of all of these shows. And it also reminded me a little bit of Roseanne, which was the other great American show about class. And that used to be on a lot uh, when I was a t- younger when I was I don't know 12 13 they used to be on British TV uh they had Roseanne on a lot channel four I think um and also Cheers but I didn't really like Cheers but I did I did quite like Roseanne um and I thought so I watched five of these episodes I thought this was a show that was really about being normal I thought this was a very interesting insight into this kind of quest for normality. Uh, and one of the issues with Malcolm being so intelligent is that he's very, very worried that he's not going to fit in anymore. And that, that the whole kind of sliding between classes, like he ends up in the kind of smart person class. Um, but he wants to make sure that he's not seen as an outlier. And in this sense, he's also in the middle. And this very interesting thing about whether being in the middle means being mediocre, whether it's to do with the mean or the medium. Um, and how that plays out in a sort of class sense as well like and and you know his older brother who initially uh, as Benjamin said I think you know is is more uh, slightly thuggish ends up having to uh, defend Malcolm's honour because everyone thinks Malcolm is a nerd and so his brother has to engage in kind of fisticuffs Um and I thought, yeah, I thought this was very interesting, this this idea of, of normality, this kind of lower middle class normality. There are class differences between the parents. There's a very interesting bit in the episode where they go to the wedding and Lois is very upset because some relative of Hal, uh, um, is that his name, Hal, says mm-hmm. to him that they call Lois uh, Lois common denominator um, <laughs> because she's, you know, not as... Uh, educated or as fancy as how and I thought this is very interesting like so they introduced this kind of class dynamic even between the parents and I actually felt a great deal of sympathy and affection for Lois I thought she was absolutely absolutely amazing character and that both of them are very very funny and and they play off of this whole embarrassment of the parents so they're often doing extremely physiologically embarrassing things like there's one episode where she's shaving in the kitchen all of the body hair off of Hal and often she's wandering around 
around naked with some like uh you know a sort of uh appropriately placed washing or whatever like in the dress episode and and that and they have sex they're very much you know they're very lusty they're very like uh very funny like quite um ribald like rabelaisian almost like i thought i thought there was some you know pre-woke culture stuff that was really good like it reminded more more of those sort of 90s edginess in some ways like where what you're doing is is not mocking for example disability or anything like that but you're mocking the way in which other people use those things um so in, for example, one of Malcolm's uh, early best friends is this black boy in a wheelchair who has difficulty speaking or breathing. Um, and they often play very, like, beautifully with their friendship. Like, it's not at all one of, it's not sanctimonious. It's not moralizing. They both kind of take the piss out of each other. Uh, Malcolm at one point borrows his friend's wheelchair in order to play off of the sympathy. He's trying to raise money for a marathon. And it's, it's really, it's really quite funny. And, and, and similarly he Malcolm has this PC teacher who is desperate to try and kind of encourage him because he's a bright boy and she wants to rescue him from his supposedly appalling family background and the boys sort of contrive to uh, get her to pay for an operation and you know they kind of mock her right she's a kind of very mockable figure in the kind of sense of her being a sort of liberal proto-wokey sort of you know liberal white saviour and so it's it's got it's got this nice edge it is funny it is physical Um, I yeah there is this sort of yeah I don't know this kind of interesting thing i suppose about what it means to like achieve anything in that way like is the point to to escape your situation is it to be reconciled to it like i think often malcolm seems in the episodes i saw anyway ultimately reconciled to his family like so even when he has an experience like he, he's, he's a babysitter and he goes and works for this posh couple but it turns out that they're kind of really perverted like they they're filming him it's not as dark as it could have been I thought that I, I was wondering whether that episode was going to get really dark actually but it turns out that they somehow for some reason enjoy filming Malcolm while he's while they're out um and and he <laughs> finds the video and uh and even though they're wonderful in every respect, they give him lovely food and money and they encourage his intellectual interests. He realises that his family, who are at that point currently living in a trailer and become even more sort of trailer park-like in their sort of having domestic arguments in the street that everyone can see and everything's on show. Um, Malcolm is ultimately reconciled to his family and he says, well, say what you like about them, but at least they're straightforward, at least they're straight talking. They tell it how it is, you know. So I suppose the idea would be that people have, of a higher class are you know always hiding something <laughs> which may be true <laughs> um so yeah in, in that sense i i it was quite uh it was quite technicolor it was quite ribald i'm i, st- I must admit i'm still a little bit as i say confused about who it was made for ultimately i think this is like the the, the, the sort of slight cultural trouble i'm having like if if you know whoever made it went to the meeting and said we've got this great idea for a show it's about a boy i mean i don't know how old malcolm's supposed to be 11 or something i don't know um at the beginning we've got this yeah, great idea for a show about. yeah like um you know it's for x and i i can't work out who x is so so maybe this is <laughs> like something you you as people who both watched it at the time and enjoyed it would would know more about it's interesting because 
my parents, especially my dad, really liked it. And I think there's something about his generation of, um, you know, when he's talking with his brother about reminiscing about childhood, it's about all the naughty things they got up to and how they almost died in some fucking like game they were playing that was so like shooting each other with bows and arrows and all this kind of stuff that like it just doesn't. I mean, they're pretty obviously it's exaggerated for effect in that show, but like. Do kids do that now? I don't. I don't know. I so I do think it has this sort of like has a bit of a throwback flavor, and I think maybe even boomers could identify with it. But I, I have to say, it's it's an interesting question. I am maybe the demographic because I absolutely loved it growing up. <laughs> I don't know. But how I old were you when you watched it? Um, probably between like twelve. I think it came to the UK slightly later. Mm. So I think it first came over maybe in 2001, maybe It started airing in 2000 when I was eight. Uh, and I think it aired through around 2007. So that would have been when I was around 15. I think it, it was on next to The Simpsons and Futurama and King of the Hill. Those are adult animation mm. shows that in practice were, of course, watched by large numbers of children, preteens and teens. Fox put it on in the weekday matinee slot when kids who have a lot of tolerance for reruns relative to adults uh, come home and, and would watch it. So Fox knew what it was doing. It had plausible deniability. It could say it's an adult show. It's with the mm-hmm. adult animation shows in primetime Sunday evening. But in practice, of course, it ran it in the slot when kids were going to see it in the afternoon, when, of course, it is an exciting and fun alternative Mm. to the children's programming that would otherwise be pushed on you by other stations at that time. So I think it catered to older kids and teenagers very heavily. But, of course, it was ostensibly pitched for adults. Adults could watch it, could like it, and many of them did and do. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, there isn't much depiction of the internet, at least in the ones I saw. Like this, again, this is like still a very visceral world. It's a very physical, in-person world. They're, they're too poor to have a personal computer in the house. Mm. So there isn't one. Nobody's mm. got a cell phone. All of that is completely no. outside of it. And that's the aspect of the show that I think is the most Gen X. These mm, kids, yeah. they are definitely younger than you, Nina, but they would have had a childhood that's more similar to yours than in many respects mine or Helen's because there just is no internet or no phone presence. Yeah, I mean, I guess the older brother, sorry, the what's his name, Francis, the guy who's at military college, is is proper, properly Gen X. Like, mm-hmm. And I think if you were Gen X watching him, like he would be the heartthrob in a way as well. Like he's this very pretty Yeah, he was much more, yeah, the other ones. Oh. I mean, you can't really fancy Malcolm because Malcolm's like a child. <laughs> well, and he um, calls home on a payphone. Every Sunday yeah. night, I used to call my parents on a payphone from exactly like that uh, from university every Sunday night. Um, that was the only way you could contact your, you know, anyone. <laughs> That's so, what yeah. we did at boarding school. Right, but exactly. That was very early days. And then I think when I was about 12, everybody started to get their own mobile phones, 13, mm. probably 13 when they all started to. But um, it's interesting, you know, you're talking about like, um, yeah, the, it, it, 
it, it deals with topics that now would be, oh, we must say this. We must, I must mm. show we as the, uh, it's funny because the French, you know, class refugee, I think it's an interesting one. They say the transfusion. I don't know if it actually is. I mean, I say class refugee. I don't know what it would be. Anyway, probably doesn't have direct translation, but like the, um, but like the people who make these shows now, who are maybe the real, um, let's say the people who've like clambered onto the last lifeboats, <laughs> and if we must have the right opinion. We must show that we have the right values. So it's like in the first episode, Malcolm makes friends begrudgingly with his um, disabled friend. And the way that, you know, that the drama is resolved in terms of the bully, you know, the, the, the friend um, acts, like uses his disability yeah. to, to, you know, to be like, ha ha ha, because it's actually not, you know, the reality of being a disabled person is not the cliche. In fact, he is like, a person like everybody else, obviously, um, and it's interesting as well because you know it's the the, the wealthy striverish family is the is the black family who are so strict, you know, and so you know have this sort of like more. I mean, the dad's really nice, this jovial kind of dad, but also just so strict, so religious, so you must be working all the time, whatever. And then you have the the uh, the white family or whatever. Um, I, I mean, I don't even know what the what, what the woke cliches are for 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 whatever. I don't. Know. I think it's just so out of touch with reality. But it's just interesting that it's 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 so unusual compared to what what you would get today. But it wasn't unusual then at all. Mm. Like it, you know, it's funny. It really makes you watching it again. You're like, oh yes, this is this is what people used to. It used to be dealt with in such, so much more of a com- complex yeah, way. This was a common trope in the late 90s and early 2000s to have a black family or a black character included with that family being the upper class family, the wealthiest family on the show to conflict with stereotyping. Uh, similarly, on South Park, uh, which came out, you know, started in 1997, relatively close to this, there's the blacks and they're the only black family in the town and they're also the richest family in the town. A common way of trying to subvert well, of course, since that's the only way uh, you get a black family in these shows, uh, in some ways it was its own trope, mm-hmm. those stereotypes. But I think, yeah, one of the main things about it is it, it's so good humoured, like it's so good natured. And I think that a lot of television really was like this. Yeah. Like it, it was like it was like real life. It was like the vitality of family life, like Roseanne as well. But but you know, slightly uh, technicolored, slightly you know, made slightly more comedic, right? Like most people's lives is not this funny and disorganized, you know, uh, story story wise organized uh, in in this way. But it but nevertheless, it's sort of reflective of a certain playfulness and and joy and and love and all of these sorts of. Um, sorts of things and and I mean Roseanne really did that very well it's, I don't know how much Roseanne either of you watched it was on for a long Not time sure. but it, it seen a bit of it yeah I it was it was actually you know I, I think very a, a very important show actually in a way of showing like lower middle class or working class America back to itself you know in a very loving way you know including all of the dramas and conflicts but it was ultimately a comedy but it had you know it had some it was ed- edgier than Malcolm in the Middle. Malcolm in the Middle is quite uh, one note in its comedy. Like, I think it does yeah. it really well, but it's, it's sort of, you know, a, a narrow range of, of things <laughs> that it's playing with. Well, if I remember rightly, the dad on Roseanne, uh, he's the one who also ends up having the most successful career out of all of the actors who got started on Roseanne. Who's Roseanne the dad? Was, was a, yeah, the dad is, uh, oh, what's his name? 
Yes, incredibly famous. I keep wanting to say yes, Ted Danson, yes. but it's not Ted. It's it's the other one who isn't Ted Danson. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, John Goodman. John Goodman, yeah, exactly. That's right. Of course, John of Goodman. Course. Yeah. Yeah. So similar thing. The dad is the one who ends up ultimately having the most successful career. They tried to bring Roseanne back a few years ago. Do you remember yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What happened th- that? Well, when they tried to bring Roseanne back, it. There was a whole controversy about it being a bit of a Republican show. There was this kind of notion that it was a conservative show or that it was for conservatives. And then uh, the actress who plays Roseanne kind of was revealed as a Trump supporter and was was kind of canceled. And then she was kicked off the reboot of her own show. But Roseanne's family would have been Trump supporters like they're proto Trump supporters in the show. To be honest, like it wouldn't it wouldn't have been at all surprising that they would have voted for Trump, had that been the right, you know, time. Mm-hmm. Right. So that so wouldn't, that wouldn't, but that wouldn't have been during... bad. That wouldn't have been bad. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't have been, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been like an ethical, we can't show the, this. Yeah. Yeah. In the liberal culture, you, you wouldn't have been able to get away with a sympathetic depiction of a Trump family, Trump supporting family, I think. Mm-hmm. And and I think Roseanne, the cat, you know, who, who's who's also called Roseanne, right? The whole show is based on <laughs> based on her in a way, or was, you know. I I think she also said stuff that was like turfy, or you know, she was right Republican, whatever. Like, and they were like, we can't have this, you know. I think she was this. was uh, went on some kind of Twitter, uh, said yeah. some things on Twitter while she was under the influence of some kind but, of drug, and so what. <laughs> You know, but it's funny yeah. because there are this handful of Hollywood people that are now, you know, known as the, you know, that they're, they're like conservative, you know, it's sort of like the conservative person, Roseanne. And it's like Roseanne, Sam Elliott, Kirstie Alley, um, who there's, there's a whole handful. And it's just like, this is the identifying factor. You know, this mm. is like what sets them apart, which is, it's very strange that I imagine, I imagine at the time that this was made, your political ideology wasn't necessarily, you know, didn't have to pass the sniff test, I'm guessing, yeah, <laughs> to be able I, to have a career as a comedy writer, for instance. No, and these shows also dealt with complex difference, mm-hmm. differences, you know, disagreements within families, you know, fallings out and, and you know, social troubles, that the kind that everyone experiences, you know, they were quite serious in that way, but like serious in their ambivalence and ambiguity and, yeah, you know, in the depiction of contradictions, basically. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of Rose, Roseanne, for example, was a lot about money. You know, class was a big deal. It was about what job you could get, you know, how well you were being paid or not. It was about service work. There are lots of, lots of scenes about how service actually works, if you see what I mean, like even them as as consumers, as users of products and things like that, or being in restaurants. Like there's a lot of depiction of this kind of social interaction that always has this class and economic dimension. It is interesting. I was just thinking about the kind of family comedies that you'd see now. And often it would be things like a relatively middle-class or upper-middle-class family who happens to have some obstacle because they are of a, you know, the more recent immigrants or of a given group. And then it'll be sort of joking about, I find like woke jokes, all they tend to do is to perform the stereotype that they've decided is true, which is not true because it's a stereotype. Stereotypes don't contain within the contradiction of truth. So they're not true. And then just exaggerate it, you know, just like pick something that is the received, the horrible woke received reductionist received wisdom, just be like, oh my God, guys, you know, it's just, 
it, it's it's really strange. Well, I think if you're always worried about offending someone, you can't make anything that's funny. <laughs> yeah, no, you can't. And you do, but you end up offending. Of course, there's a whole group of offended people always. If you're, if you're, send, if you're, even if you're not funny, but you're trying to be funny, as in like men do this, men, you know, that they are, but they're not allowed to be offended because they don't really ideologically exist as subjects. They're sort of, right. they're, they're, they're this non-human blob that is designed to um, sustain a puritanical, non-contradictory universe they must be excluded. So there's a whole, you know, like, again, the, the Trump supporter that can't be depicted in a humane way because yeah. they don't actually exist in the realm of this form of culture. They're just not, they're not human subjects. And the, the, the fact that they've been reduced to not being human subjects is precisely why they vote for Trump. Right, I exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, at least in part. Yeah, well, at least, yeah. Part, part of the fun of the family in Malcolm in the Middle is that you, you have an enormous amount of diversity within a group of white boys. Each of those boys is quite distinct and different from the others. They are not defined mm. principally by the fact that they're boys or by the fact that they're white. Each one has a different way of getting through school, a different way of dealing with the parents. Uh, and in the show, they, they bounce off each other and the way they deal with different situations bounces uh, they bounces off and, and affects, and you get a, a complexity out of that. And for me, I'm always interested in power dynamics. I just can't help myself. So to to watch how these different people navigate the fact that Lois is so authoritarian and so determined to get them to behave in particular ways, and to watch each one of the boys cope with it differently and to use their own skills and abilities to make their way uh, with this hanging over them at all times, I think is really uh, just, just kind of politically fascinating. It, it really shows the family as an institution and a structure as a power structure, emphasizes the power structure element to the family and the sense in which the family is a kind of political organization. Uh, and I, I find that a lot of shows about the family kind of paper over that. Uh, or, or try to, um, you know, make it mushier or make it more about affection. But there's a, a certain rawness to it in Malcolm in the Middle that always fascinated me. In my own family, there's a lot of bluntness and directness. And, uh, you know, when we, when we have conflicts, we are out in the open about it. And seeing that depicted on, on TV, uh, I, I really got a kick out of it. And there's, a very, there's a very beautiful scene, I think, where um, Francis comes back and he's babysitting them for the weekend and they love their older brother. You know, they worship him and they want him to come back and they, they want the parents to take him uh, out of military college so he can come back and live with them. And they and there is it and they're, they're supposed to sort of look after the house and everything's supposed to go well. And of course, there is a big party. Francis invites some sort of disreputable stoner friends of his and the whole house is trash. But then all of them clean up the house. But the funny bit is not any of that it's the moment where they realize that the house is too perfect and that <laughs> Lois will never believe them so they have to slightly trash the house again which is the interesting moment in order for the parents to believe that everything is okay because it's so it can't be perfect so I think I think Lois is 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 sort of comedically I don't think she's actually authoritarian I think she's just barely keeping it together to be honest I think you know that her job of managing these four boys and a husband 
is actually so difficult that, you know, that she's using these sort of, it's like fake authoritarian in a way. Like I think, you know, she, but that's the sympathetic thing about authoritarianism. There is always a reason (laughs) politically that authoritarians do authoritarian things. And you can sympathize with the point of view of the dictator because the dictator is in a very precarious position. Yeah, well, this is true. You you end up with this abuse, abuse happens and bullying happens precisely when, there is there is an imbalanced power structure and the power is teetering on the verge of whatever. But there is something interesting about the jouissance that the boys get out of this, this performative, um, like authoritarianism. So for instance, at the end, um, I can't remember. He keeps up the light. So, oh yeah, yeah. So, so the brother, I think Reese does get a job. So the final episode is, re, re, you know, Malcolm going to university and then, and Reese getting a job as a janitor. And basically he moves in with that like sad case who works at the supermarket with Lois. And he, um, he does, he put, you know, he has to pretend that he doesn't have a job. He does have a job and he's having, he actually kind of is fine with it. He kind of enjoys it and it's fine. Um, but he has to keep pretending to Lois that he doesn't have a job because he loves the sort of... Oh, that's of, Francis. Francis is, is, is the Francis? one who pretends yeah, he like, doesn't have a job at the end to oh, yeah, yeah, keep Lois angry with him. He for a job that he actually yeah. kind of likes. And he's saying to Hal about, oh. Oh, yeah, I love going and getting my coffee in the morning and the banter around the, the water cooler. That is Francis. Yeah, no, I, I think I wrote that in my notes wrong. I was wondering, kind of making it up in my mind. But yeah, it was Francis. But... Um, the other thing is, yeah, yes, yeah, so there is a sort of like a, a jouissance and, and an enjoyment. But the thing is, the worst form of, uh, you know, of, uh, of authoritarianism is authoritarianism that pretends it's not authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. You, know, but, you know, the, the wolf in sheep's clothing. And you, what we have a lot today, and interesting, I'm thinking of doing a film related to this, related to an institution about the old form of authoritarianism is not good, but... It's better than a repressed country, a repressed mm. authoritarianism where you must enjoy your mask. You know, so, so you can get with it, with a legit, with a, with a, an out in the open authoritarian, you can actually get some, you can enjoy your enjoyment. But with this, but that's not to say, obviously, authority, I, I don't, I think authoritarianism is bad, obviously, but this, this new authoritarianism, which doesn't even acknowledge that it's authoritarian and it's, it's profoundly, um, you must love your master. And this is the, like the liberal parent, the hippie parent for, for Zizek, where, you know, the old ways is you will go and see your granny on Friday and you don't really like her, but you're just going to go and you suck it up. And you just have to go. Tough luck. And the new one is like, oh, well, you must go and see granny. She really misses you. You must she, you know, you must go. No, it's 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 up to you. But she'll feel you. awful if you don't. You know, exactly. there's, there's an episode about this where there's a yeah. death, and Lois is trying to get them to go to the funeral. Uh, and Lois straightforwardly tells the boys that uh, I hated that woman. We all hated her, but we have to go anyway. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. very good. There's the thing is, I think, is part of the part of how psychoanalysis works. It's not like the the the. The suffering, like nothing is a nothing is a pathology. Pathology, obviously, pathos, suffering. If 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 it doesn't cause suffering, like so, for instance, like you could be somebody who's addicted to running and runs two hundred miles a week, but as long as you're not suffering from it, that's fine. <laughs> so so often we we tend to like project pathologies onto things that we decide are pathologies, but actually symptoms operate in much more ambivalent ways. The point where you where psychoanalysis comes in is when the the symptom is so bad that it's destroying your life, and then you can maybe look at the unconscious dimensions that have generated the symptoms. So you maybe lessen the lessen the you know 
the, the sting of it or whatever, or you find new ways to sublimate, you know, your unconscious issues. But um, shit, what are we talking about? Pathology, psychoanalysis. Oh, yes. So the thing is about psychoanalysis is like, it's about, you can't transform what you can't understand. So it's about understanding. Like, mm. so just acknowledging and knowing. And if you are just, if, with mystification, you can't transform anything. So, you know, Marx's thing about the opening of the people and picking the living flower, you can't transform a society that you don't understand. And what is going on right now, it's all about mystification. So we really can't understand. And it causes so much suffering because I was thinking, Benjamin, if you wanted, you could make loads of money therapizing people and your therapist specialty will be like pointing out, they come with their like, the dissatisfaction they feel in their life. Because obviously there is dissatisfaction when there's a group of more than two people, there are power dynamics. There's a sort of political dimension to it. So always there's going to be this reality principle of not having what you want. When ideology tells you that the reason why you don't have what you want is because of your own fault in the past, it used to be you aren't praying hard enough or whatever. And now maybe it's, you know, you're not ethical enough. If Benjamin comes along and allows you to see, because honestly, understanding is the most, this is why reason is really important in psychoanalysis and Mm. where these like interpreters of psychoanalysis go off the fucking range when they think it's just about like feelings or like throwing you just like making everything a bit weird it's like no obviously feelings are super important and reason not on its own is often a defense against the emotions that are very generative of being able to for right for interpretation which comes so it's like reason combined with emotion but um the most suffering like so much suffering comes from this mystified um, dynamic of what's truly going on. And so for instance, it's not like psychoanalysis is not about getting what you want because actually it's about enjoying what you don't have, but understanding what you want and why you can't get it and why you can get it and all this kind of stuff. So Benjamin could come along and I've always thought maybe I need him to therapize me in this situation where you have this predicament where you think life is unfair because it is unfair, unfair, but you don't really know that it's unfair because the unfairness is mystified. And Benjamin can come along and be like, right, this is the power dynamic that's going on. And this is why you're not getting what you want. But it's okay because you can still revolve around not getting what you want, just knowing what the dynamics are. You can be a bit more, that would be very... You could make a computer game. There's a bit like Civ Five, but uh, one for sorting out your life. <laughs> L- life. Life Five or something. You could play different strategies. <laughs> Just applying uh, political theory to the family and, exactly. and using that as a as a psychoanalytic tool. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> we should bring back that kind of great seventies psychoanalysis, like the sort of social psychoanalysis that's so missing. You yeah. know, yeah, that, that, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I think R. D. Lang is an unfinished project. I think people took some yeah. of the worst aspects of Lang and and I turned them into had, something evil, like the I family abolition stuff. I had such a bad um, assumption of R.D. Lang just because yeah. of what I've seen. And then I read The Divided Sub... What is it? The Divided... No, what is Self. it? The Divided Self, yeah. yeah. I was like, this is really good. And I've been so quick to write him off just because there's so much bollocks that's been like the secondary reading. In, no, in the 80s, yeah. in the 80s, there was a generation of academics who thought it was really subtle and clever to say that uh, all of these structures are reified abstractions and that the individual is real and everything has to come back to the individual. And if you're speaking structurally, you're speaking gobbledygook. Basically, let's just redo Jeremy Bentham and utilitarianism, but, you know, pretend that we're being clever because we've in, we've connected it to contemporary disciplines and contemporary scholarship. Just a kind of a, a silly, silly thing 
uh, that's everywhere now. And it's, it's aggravating. You know, sometimes it's difficult to get into journals if you talk about concepts that aren't the individual, aren't um, individual well-being, don't make everything about individual agency and, and begin with structures. You get accused of reifying and being overly stylized and all of that. Uh, but I, I did want to say one more thing about mm. the show because we're getting near yeah. to the end. You know, Helen made a, you know, a reference to how uh, you know, each of the, the kids is kind of valued on his own terms, each of the boys. And the episode where Reese really comes quite close to being put in the remedial class in season two, that there's a teacher who just kind of doesn't like Reese because Reese is a bully. And is out to get Reese. And so always fails Reese. So to try to save Reese from going to remedial class, Malcolm starts doing Reese's work for him. But the teacher continues to fail Reese because the teacher doesn't care what Reese turns in. He's determined to fail him. Uh, and so all of this gets exposed. Now, the only way it can get exposed, of course, is for it to be exposed that Malcolm is cheating. So there's a kind of closed conversation where they go, okay, uh, you know, you've got to... Uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to expose the fact that you have it out for Reese. And he goes, well, if you expose me on that, then it'll be exposed that Malcolm cheated. And then Malcolm will be kicked out of school. And you'd never sacrifice Malcolm for Reese because Malcolm has real potential and Reese does not. And Lois goes, I'd sacrifice Malcolm in a minute for Reese. Malcolm will be fine. He's smart. He'll, he'll be okay one way or another. Reese is the one who needs to be saved. Aww. And just as they're having this discussion, you know, that the... Um, Francis, who has been kicked out of the house, uh, comes banging on the window going, Bob, I'm cold. You know, please <laughs> let me in. And, and the teacher realizes that Lois has resolve and that Lois might really be willing to do terrible things to one of her sons uh, and, and relents and backs off and an arrangement is made whereby Reese does not have to go into the remedial class. But I think that really captures the show, you know, even though Reese has a kind of decline over the course of the show, the decline is not his fault. And it's not because he doesn't have value or he's a bad person. It's because society does not value the things that Reese is good at. And that's not fair because Reese is good at lots of things. For one, he's an excellent cook. You know, for two, he, there's one episode where it's revealed that he's invented hundreds of games for all of the kids in the neighborhood to play. He has a lot of different abilities, and the show always reminds you about that. If they've had too many episodes in a row where they've picked on him for being stupid, they remind you that there are some things he's really quite good at. There's an episode where they're stuck on the road, and there's an ice cream truck, and the ice cream guy says, I can't sell you ice cream because we're in the middle of a traffic jam, and it's not legal for me to sell ice cream in the street. So I can't sell you ice cream, but it's a very hot day, and all of the kids, they want the ice cream, and it's Reese who orchestrates the plan for getting the ice cream, for tricking the guy into coming out of his, his van and leaving the door open so the kids can go inside and grab all of the ice cream. And it's Reese who distributes the ice cream fairly to all who participated. Uh, the show really values even that kind of guy, even that kind of boy, with all of his, his faults and, and his mm. cruelties and his bullying and his physical. It's one of the things I really like yeah, about that show. There's and a really place like for that, everybody in it. That, that idea yeah. that being naughty, now it's sort of like academics is so important, obviously, with this sort of commoditization of, of young people's lives and student debt and everything like that. But yeah, the, the, and I think back to like when I hear conversations with my uncle and my dad, all of those things, breaking rules sometimes is very important. 
and that you you know in in a in a system where you know you have a set of rules but it's acknowledged when it's okay to break things and when it's you know and you sort of revolve around this challenging of authority but when authority is hidden you have to have this personal policing and just be ethical and good and never do anything wrong and of course if you've done something wrong once someone will trawl it up on your internet history and you'll be cancelled or something or at least if that doesn't happen we'll all live in fear that it might so we have this sort of panopticon self-panopticon in relation to sort of a potential exposure of our past transgressions when you know what is it really to transgress in the first place what all right constitutes bad transgressing anyway yeah sorry so we've, we've <laughs> hit the hour mark so i t- i had to take helen's pause as an opportunity to close the show so thank you guys so much for listening i really love doing this one it was a blast have a wonderful rest of the day bye-bye bye-bye, bye-bye.